see if we can do this. So um, <clears throat> I'm asking for some people to call out answers to this. Okay, so that, that's what I'm expecting of you. So um, see if you can work out which TV ad these things come from. If I push this the right way, do I need to vote that way? Try again. I don't have the magic fingers. Uh, wait. Do I push the right hand arrow button or do I push? I've got the wand of power at home. It works for me there. <laughs> Try it. Ah, there we are. Okay, so it's finger licking good. KSC, okay, radio. The uh, burgers are better at? Okay, you guys know these things. So that I've got this is an old one. I've got the hots for what's in the box. Dominoes. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, now, do you recognise that they're actually all fast food adverts? Did you sort of get that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that they all tap into this idea that we've got some sort of um, craving for a bit of junk food. Food which, you know, it really tastes good, but doesn't supply our daily needs. <clears throat> and here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he's putting out an invitation to Israel. We, we didn't cover it, but it was there in the Beatitudes. His invitation is to live in the kingdom of God. His invitation is, hey, who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness? by which he means the righteousness of the kingdom, not your own personal righteousness. Trouble is, he's talking to an Israel that's been fed junk food for years. And maybe they're not actually really hungry at all. Particularly the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Um, uh, they've got their own minds set, it would seem. They've got their own righteousness, so neatly defined, uh, packaged up, maybe so well fried in deep oil that they're contented and they can't tell that they're malnourished and in danger, deadly danger. Look, well, when you turn to Matthew chapter 5, we need to be careful. See, the words of this sermon have been used to get people to do all sorts of things which are wrong. And so we need to take time to notice the context of what Jesus is saying and to work inside that context. And the first thing that we really need to uh, notice is that Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. Have a look at verse 17. Grab your Bibles. Work with me a bit here. Follow along. I don't care if it's on your phone or if you've got paper copy, follow along. Verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfill, like in keeping a promise. I've fulfilled the promise. It's come to fruition. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, until 
heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he's saying, look, um, everything's going to stay. It's all there. It's not going to be taken away. Not until everything is finished. Not until the promises have all been fulfilled. And Jesus himself, he's not going to change not the smallest pen stroke of God's law in the Old Testament or of the prophets. So that what Jesus says in this sermon is not changing the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus says, verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So if anyone has taught you that Jesus has changed or modified the Old Testament teaching, I'm going to say they've lied to you. Jesus' teaching is exactly what the Old Testament taught. What Jesus himself contradicts is the teaching of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What Jesus gives us is the right way to apply God's law in the kingdom of God where Jesus is king. You need to sort of get that. What Jesus gives us is the right way to apply God's law in the kingdom of God where Jesus is king. And note this, this is the really the second thing that sets the context. Jesus says to them in the middle of verse 19, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. At which point, I think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you know, they rub their chest, go, yeah, we're in here. Slightly too soon. And verse 20 nails them. And it must have come as a shock to the crowd as well. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they teach the law all right. They impose the law on other people. But see, there's a problem. For I tell you, says Jesus, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to get a righteousness which is better than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, a righteousness which comes by faith and is based on Jesus fulfilling the requirements of the law and the prophets. The teachers of the law, you see, they've really got a profound problem, which Jesus goes on to describe in detail with these examples, murder, adultery, love for your enemies. Now, now I don't know how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law ever got the idea into their head that God was somehow more interested in a rule book than he was in a heart. 
cause, I'm going to say, it's a perverse mistake to make. And it's been made in the name of religion endless times. I mean, why would you ever think that God would take delight in a nation that keeps a bunch of rules but with a rotten attitude? The Pharisees were actually passionate about obedience to God's law. In fact, the Pharisees were convinced that obedience to God's law was going to bring God's blessing again. There's just one thing that they missed. They're the tasty bits, where time and time again God said things like, circumcise your hearts. And the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. They miss the bits about the heart. Do you think that God would give his commandments and ask them to keep those commandments with no interest in the sort of people they were on the inside? No. God is looking for people whose hearts hunger and thirst for righteousness, whose hearts believe God. And the Pharisees, they've left the heart out. The Pharisees are feeding Israel on a diet of righteousness that's not really righteous at all. The Pharisees are feeding Israel a diet of law and they're saying These are the laws of God, but all they're really doing is dishing up fast food that maybe hides the real hunger while everyone starves. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are saying, no, we're right, thanks. We're keeping the law, when in reality... They've ripped the heart out of it all. Look at what Jesus says as he puts the heart back into the law. I think Jesus starts with commandment number six because this is what the Pharisees are actually going to do. They're going to justify murder, murdering Jesus. They're going to put, they're going to not put their faith in Jesus. And they're going to not love Jesus. Look at verses 21 through to 24. Now, imagine these sorts of people who rule out murder but are happy to hate who rule out certain swear words in verse 22. Whatever you do, don't say raka, don't insult them. Yes, it's quite okay to be angry at them. It's quite okay to be spiteful and call others fools. And Jesus says, don't kid yourself. Imagine people, verse 23, who are going through all the religious ropes, all the smells and bells, and, and they're offering their gifts at the altar, and they think that God's satisfied with that. But they've wronged their Jewish brother. I mean, 
Doesn't it occur to them that God's actually more interested in their reconciliation than in their ritual? That when he said, don't murder, he didn't mean that it was quite okay to hate? Verses 25 and 26, I think Jesus is actually warning them to settle up with God before it's too late. Because if Israel doesn't wake up to its problem, they're going to find themselves missing out on the kingdom of heaven. He said it already back in verse 20, if their righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who've left the heart out, that they're not going to enter the kingdom. And he says it again here, verse 25, settle up fast before you hand it over to the judge and you find yourself in prison. There's more. Imagine someone who says, the law says, do not commit adultery. And yet they're quite happy to nurse little lustful feelings in their hearts. Can you see the words here at the end of verse 28? What matters, says Jesus, is what's going on in your heart. If you've already committed adultery with someone in your heart, if that's where your heart is, don't they think God's somehow interested in that? As perhaps a measure of whether they've turned back to God with all their heart? And all their soul. I mean, look at how serious this is. If they don't wake up to themselves and do something drastic, it's a matter of the kingdom of heaven or perhaps the prison of hell. Do you remember it uh, was made into a movie, the story of Aaron Ralston? It, It was way back, 2002, 2003, Aaron was a rock climber. He was climbing rocks in the desert of the USA. Aaron was a top athlete. He was on his own. He slipped, somehow pinning his arm under a boulder in a tight crevice. And no matter what what he did, his arm wouldn't come loose. And so one day, after being some time without food or drink, He took out his pocket knife, sharpened it on a rock and cut off his own arm just below the shoulder and walked the 20 miles to safety. None of which he says was fun, but was way better than the alternative, dying in the desert. Verses 29 and 30 are saying desperate times call for desperate measures. It's time for these Israelites listening on the mountain to wake up. What are they really hungry for? It's time, perhaps, for desperate measures. There's more. Divorce. Divorce is a terrible thing. Look, there's no winners in divorce. If you've lived through it in your family, you'll know. Uh, I think these days there's, there's something like one in four Aussie marriages that end in divorce, causing untold heartbreak. 
So, so what sort of a person is going to reduce divorce to a format, a matter of paperwork? A Pharisee, of course, that's who, who's convinced that divorce is quite okay as long as the paperwork is in order, who think that God's only interested in maintaining the family unit in Israel, his only interest in that is that, yes, you can dissolve the marriage as long as you've filled out the right forms in triplicate. Uh, Have a look there, verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Let me tell you, he says, it's way more serious than that. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. You can't just dissolve a marriage with a glib piece of paper. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. A teacher of the law might think that their certificate makes a difference, but it doesn't make a difference to God. And so those hard-hearted Israelite men are divorcing their, their wives with the slightest provocation and thinking nothing of it because there's something terribly wrong with their hearts. We've lost the stuff up there, so you're going to have to listen harder just at the moment. It's all good. Okay. What about keeping your word? Funny. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they found a loophole. It's not about being true to your word unless you've spoken the proper formula oath. And so they, the rule is, do not break your oath, but keep your oaths that you've made which kind of gives them all sorts of loopholes about how to make promises and what sorts of promises do you really need to keep. It's a bit like crossing your fingers behind your back. To which Jesus says, and this really shows up the problem, verse 37, he says, just say yes or no and mean it. Why do you need to attach an oath to it? Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And it's just making excuses for your lack of integrity is what he's saying. I mean, whoever would have thought that God was interested in that sort of of righteousness that led to breaking a promise on a technicality? God's not interested in that. Two more. We're working hard here. Pharisees delight in revenge. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And there's nothing quite so much fun as gouging out your enemy's eye or pulling your enemy's tooth when it's time for payback. And Jesus says, look, real righteousness, it doesn't look like this. Instead of demanding your right of revenge, go the extra mile. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Jesus says, turn to him the other also. If they want your tunic, give to him your coat as well. 
If they make you go one mile, go two. This is not saying that others have the right to bully you. But this is about getting revenge. Leave revenge in God's hands. And finally, love. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, and it was said by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, love your neighbour, but it's quite okay to hate your enemy. I mean, again, it's a bit bizarre, isn't it, really, to think that God would be happy with a heart like that. To think that righteousness could look like that. Uh, Jesus, he says, oh, wait a minute, you should be loving your enemies, praying for them. I mean, isn't that what God did to us? Loved us when we were his enemies? And when you pray for them, you know, don't pray, God, improve them or remove them. You know, actually really pray for them. Let's kind of put this picture together, shall we? I mean, how would you like to meet someone like this in a dark alley? A person who's nice to their friends but prepared to hate everyone else. Who is always ready to take revenge at the slightest provocation. Whose words you need to listen to very carefully in case there's a loophole which they don't really, well, they're not really interested in keeping their promise, are they? A person who'll comfortably write off a marriage and go into another and all the while casting their eye around for somebody else, imagining what they could be like with them. Not ever actually killing anyone, but angry and spiteful and calling everyone else fools, yet proud of the fact that they never use any of the swear words. You know, that's your Pharisee, that's your teacher of the law. And look, that's more than likely your average Israelite as well. And they think they're being righteous. And so in the end, they're actually not being hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says... You're doing nothing more than the pagans do. If you want to be restored, the restored Israel, you need to be perfect. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Because as it stands, there being nothing like their father in heaven at all. Now, I kind of wonder, as you, as you listen to, well, let's call it a sermon, what do you really think? What do you think the Israelites thought of that as they listened to Jesus? Do you think that they were moved by those words of Jesus? Or were they moved to reconsider their definition of righteousness? Were they moved to reconsider how their hearts are before God? Were they moved to consider whether they've embraced God's law with their heart? 
or perhaps they still saw it as just a bunch of formal propositions that they could tick the list off on. I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. They've smiled at people and shaken their heads but don't actually love them. I wonder if they're hungry for something more than really just a diet of junk food, the junk food that was being served up by the Pharisees. So what about you? What are you really hungry for? Remember how Jesus starts off this whole Sermon on the Mount. I've said it a number of times. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they will be filled. Are you happy with the righteousness that Jesus is describing here? A righteousness that goes right to the heart of the law and asks you, hey, where's your heart at? So I want you to do that just now. Look into your heart. Uh, Don't look at the heart of the person sitting next to you. Don't look into my heart. Where's your heart? And if your heart isn't right, then don't despair. Don't despair, because you know what? Jesus did what we couldn't do for us. In his perfect obedience, in his sin-bearing death, in his resurrection, and in his pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Which means that if your heart isn't right, all you have to do is wholeheartedly repent. All you have to do is turn to God, stick with God. Don't trust and rely in your own heart. Look, this doesn't mean that in the end you're free to do whatever you would like to do. God still judges sin. But it does mean that we should love God more than we love our own sinful hearts. And it does mean that you'll live with hearts believing in God, living for God and not just yourself, that you'll give yourself over for God to use. You'll take up your cross. You'll deny yourself to get the righteousness that comes from Jesus and is by faith. Let's pray. Father, uh, we really thank you for your word. Uh, we marvel at just how concerned you are for us, how you, you seek, Father, not just a bunch of outward showing from us, but you seek who we really are, our person, our heart, our mind. Father, set us free. Give us hearts to love you, to trust you, to believe in you, now and forever. 
Amen.